Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bed. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming at you guys today after a week layoff where the free agent market in Major League Baseball finally started getting rolling. We finally started getting some traction. We had some moves made. We had some scandal in Major League Baseball. And we're going to touch all of those things. Do we have anything else? There's so much baseball to talk about, Sam. Anything else we want to touch on today? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of baseball and we're going to take you through every signing and trade. There's also been some some hot rumors going on in the NFL, some relating very closely to the Jets and then possibly getting a very good quarterback on their team. So we're going to run through a couple of those rumors. We're going to discuss briefly the the NFL action from the divisional round, what we expect to see in the conference championship games. But there's so much, so much baseball news. So let's just start with with the Alonzo Betts favorite sport, baseball. The, the, the first piece of news, of, of course, is comes on a bit of a sad tenor, uh, and that's that the Mets' newly minted general manager, I think of 38 days, Jared Porter, uh, was fired after an explosive story by ESPN that shared details of an inappropriate text conversation he had with a foreign uh, reporter in 2016 where he made sexual advances and initially uh, there was there was there was some contact between them but she stopped responding and he sent 62 unanswered text messages to her including an unsolicited picture of his erect penis as Jeff Passan put it um, <laughs> thank you for so, using uh, precise MLB terminology there Sam uh, yeah so I mean this is of course, very disturbing and psychotic behavior. Um, yeah, and, I'm I'm extremely yeah. disturbed, Sam. But before we go into like all the things that are wrong with this, do you think there's ever been another team to fire a manager and a GM after a cumulative less than fifty days on the job performance in in the same year in baseball history? I don't think so. And, and the, 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 the crazier part about it is it happened under two totally different regimes. You know, yeah, one- it is, fu- it is funny. Cause they fired. So for those who may not have caught on to what we're talking about, the Mets fired Carlos Beltran as their manager. That had to have been like five days after they hired him. Like it was immediately after they hired him um, earlier. No, this- I, th- I think he actually lasted longer than, than Jared Porter. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it might've been like, like 40 days or something. Oh, okay. Okay. But, but very, a very, very short tenure for him as well. And of course the reason that they let him go was because of his implication as a central part of the Astros sign stealing scandal. So like, you know, like it's not really the Mets fault, like actually in both of these situations to bring it back into Porter a little bit. So what Porter did was, you know, send all these explicit messages, be extremely inappropriate, unprofessional and kind of, leverage the position that he was in in a weird way to um, make things very uncomfortable for a foreign reporter up to the point where it became just pure on harassment. Um, and this all happened while he was working with the Red Sox, actually. Oh, the Cubs, the Cubs. Oh, the Cubs. I'm sorry, the Cubs. Yeah. Um, and so this, in both cases, in the Beltron case and in the Jared Porter case, the Mets have been left with a situation where they have to make a determination on a guy who they just hired for a position in their organization. 
based on something that he did outside of their organization while he was not a member of their organization. And in both instances, I think they chose correctly, Sam, to terminate both Carlos Beltran and Jared Porter. In the case of Beltran, I think the topic was just too hot for the time, whether or not you agree with it, you know, cheating and sign stealing and all that stuff is a long and complicated discussion that we maybe should save for another pod. In this instance, um, I do think it was not as much PR. I think that Cohen just saw it and said, this is not how I'm starting my tenure. Uh, I'm not starting it being an apologist and defending for somebody who has not been a part of this and who did something that hopefully Steve Cohen finds morally reprehensible. Um, and so they're going to take action and remove him from his post. And I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's a good sign for, for Mets fans. Yeah, and I, I was definitely happy to see that you know, this news broke at like 11.30 p.m. Uh, on, I forget, maybe it was Monday night or Tuesday night, and he was fired by 8 a.m. the next morning. So the Mets, the Mets acted very swiftly. And of course, how can you not, like when you read what, what this guy did, it's just, it's just insane, unacceptable behavior. I, I do think the Mets are maybe slightly more to blame in the Beltron situation than this one in that there were sort of well-known rumblings in the baseball community of Beltran's ties to that sign stealing scandal when he was hired. Uh, Maybe they didn't realize that he would be as targeted in the report by major league baseball as he ended up being, but you, the the Mets could have possibly preempted this being a possible scandal. I'm not saying it's, it's totally their fault, but in, in this specific case in the Porter signing, it does really seem like the Mets had no way of knowing about this particularly because the Diamondbacks and Cubs, the past organizations he's been working for the past few years, also seem to have not known about this, particularly because this story was um, originally tracked down by ESPN, but the the woman in question uh, did not want the story to be reported because she did not want to basically be retaliated against in her career. Um, and, And, you know, Again, it's a very, very unfortunate situation. And and the fact that she felt that she could be retaliated against is a real, it's a black mark on sort of the culture within Major League Baseball towards women. Um, but, you know, again, I think while it was a very unfortunate situation, the Mets likely had no way of knowing this before they hired Jared Porter. Yeah, so I generally agree that the ease of access to the information in two, in the two cases from the Mets organization standpoint was different. I think it would have been much easier for them to verify to a decent level of certainty that, um, you know, Carlos Beltran was a major part of this. And I think it would have been more difficult for the Mets to dig this story up on Jared Porter. Um, obviously there were, it was not a super well-known thing because it survived for four years without anybody really knowing about it. Um, but at the same time, there is that um, you know pervasive like culture towards women that you spoke about previously. And I think part of that is the fact that the Mets literally spoke to zero women in positions of power in other organizations in baseball about his signing. This actually was, I thought, a very good question asked by um, a reporter at ESPN when they had the press conference. And the um, kind of realization that Alderson didn't 
it's not necessarily a, a, a black mark on Alderson or the Mets organization, but it, I do think it is indicative of the fact that nobody is considering other types of viewpoints, right? Like when they're looking to hire a candidate, nobody thought to say, oh, I wonder if any women in the industry have had any negative interactions with him. I wonder if anybody who has a different outlook on the industry and the game than the traditional Ivy League educated, you know, white guy who works in front offices right now. Um, I, I think that for this to fully change, that is the type of underlying structure that kind of needs to change. And it, the good thing about the MLB is that like, there's really no pushback on this. Like every time something like this comes out, which it has a couple times in the last couple of years, I feel like everybody in the MLB is kind of like, ooh, yikes. Like, yeah, that's bad. Let's see what we can do to make it better. Now, of course, that's not super valuable without tangible action, but it is better to the alternative of, I feel like the NFL often stonewalls issues like this. Like, just think about the whole Dan Schneider thing that happened last year with uh, the Washington football team. Like, that was swept under the rug, more or less. So it's better than that. Yeah, and I also know it's already a change within the within the culture of the Mets organization where the Wilpons notably tried to like fire a woman for getting pregnant or something. Oh, right. Jesus Christ. I forgot about that. Like, so, uh, you know, much more hardening the way that, that Steve Cohen dealt with, with a situation. I I have one more before we move on to, to more free agency news. I I have one question about how ESPN specifically handled this situation. Now I don't know anything about like journalistic ethics. So, so maybe I'm wrong, but it seems sort of suspect to me that ESPN knew this information for four years. The Mets were hiring Jared Porter to be one of the most powerful people in baseball. And like no one, like this was well known that he was getting hired, like, and that no one at ESPN could maybe like covertly be like, Hey, don't hire this guy because he has some baggage that you don't want. And it's like, I know, I know the woman in question did not want the story to be published at that time. But I, I guess to me, it seems like you don't even need to like the woman doesn't even need to be brought up or the story in particular needs to be brought up. It seemed like there could have been some channel that ESPN could have prevented a man like this from coming into power. Cause like, imagine like this woman never wanted to come forward with this story. Like, Porter's gonna could have been a GM for a decade, two decades. Right, like right. I, I guess so. There's a couple a couple things I see here, but I I'm not sure any of them are really an ethical question, right? Because, well, unless you believe that like him rising to a position of power causes more pain for this woman, which I'm not sure about. I honestly don't know if that is a factor in this well, at all. Well, but I think ign- no, let's ignore that for a second. Yeah, yeah. So if we ignore that for a second, I actually don't see any moral obligation for ESPN to stop this from happening if they know that they're going to put the story out afterwards. I do see a moral obligation if they've decided to squash it so this guy's career can keep going. But whether they decide to step in and stop the Mets or just put it out afterwards is not, I think, morally relevant. And then from the eyes of ESPN, then they don't owe anything to the Mets like they have no allegiance to the Mets there's no reason that because the Mets are really the ones that suffer here and they they have no reason to help them necessarily 
And it is in their economic benefit to wait until he gets hired because a story breaking about some guy who works in front offices versus a story breaking about the new GM of the Mets who you know are this team who's putting something together, obviously uh, more impactful in the latter situation. So is it like kind of shady and weird? And like, if it were just me who knew the information, would I have handled it differently? Probably. But like at the end of the day, I'm not sure I, I have a big problem outside of like what media is right now with what ESPN did. Yeah, that's fair. And I, again, there are a lot of dynamics here, such as like whether or not a source wants to go forward with a story. And I, I'm sure there are some like ethical principles in journalism that you have to go by that I'm not really familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so with that, you know, this is obviously a huge black mark on, on major league baseball and you know, somewhat the Mets organization, just not necessarily as if they're to blame, but it's an unfortunate situation that they're placed in. But with that, let's just get into. Well, um, let me, let me make one quick pitch here. Um, I know we have a lot of male listeners and I've been thinking about this story a lot, guys, if you're sending, you know, four text messages and they haven't responded, you're already in the danger zone. Okay. So if you then take that to the third power, then you're you're out of there okay you're you're done you're out of the danger zone and you're potentially landing yourself in jail so scale it back you know if one or two go unanswered that next one better be important um and uh just let's stop being creepy because it's it's not a good look for us but with that i will let us go on to some amazing signings and one right off the bat that i think jumps out because we've been dancing around it for months um and by months i really mean weeks but there has been a lot of talk other people are going to sign him he's getting tired of waiting for the team that he wants to sign with blah 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 but at the end of the day the yankees do snag their man they get dj lemayhew 32 year old utility infielder on a six year 90 million dollar contract um wow you know well let's talk about that but just so we know just so we know what else we're looking at the Yankees didn't stop there. They said, all right, we got 90 M on the books with DJ LeMayhew, but this is, this is New York. This is the big apple baby. And the New York Metropolitans aren't the only ones with cash in the, in the coffers. So they went out and they grabbed Corey Kluber who only took, it only took one workout for scouts to know Corey was ready to play major league ball again. Corey Kluber, one year, $11 million. And let me tell you, that's a one-two punch that we kind of all were expecting to happen in one fashion or another. I don't think anyone was expecting Corey Kluber to be a Yankee necessarily, but we expected the Yankees to continue making improvements and probably bring LeMahieu back. So it's not a huge surprise, but man, that team is solid. That team is rock solid. Yeah. The Yankees, the Yankees really needed LeMahieu. Like I, you know, you heard all these rumors that he could go elsewhere. I always felt like the Yankees were going to get it done. I like that team needs LeMahieu. Agreed. He's, he's so important to their lineup. And especially and, as they lose, I, I will say this also, especially as they lose Guardy, because if there's any team in the major leagues that needs like a kind of grumpy veteran in the clubhouse to back <laughs> up their philosophy as a team, it's the Yankees. And DJ LeMahieu, I think, is going to slot into that role as the heir apparent. And, you know, I think six years 90 is actually a big of a steal for the Yankees. I think it's a good uh, deal. So they like, are paying I mean, for like two years of uh, another cop to Guardy. They really are paying for like at least two years of somebody who's going to be a gritty 
off the bench player who can slot in still at at least two positions, if not three, and will make contact with the ball. But they're really paying top dollar for those first four years, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, of course, he is already 32 and a half. So the question is whether or not he's going to age well. I mean, I think with a guy like LeMahieu, who's maybe a little less reliant on, on power, you might expect a, a profile like that to age a little better. He's got such good contact skills. Uh, he really like seems to still be getting better every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I think he's, he's going to continue to be, I think. I mean, if he know, could do what he did last year, he, he walked almost as much as he struck out last year for the first time in his career. And given it was a smaller sample size, but if he could do that over a full season, like the yeah, guy I mean, is he's, invaluable. I mean, he's a, he's a top five to 10 hitter in baseball. If he does what he did last year over a full season. I yeah. mean, I think the Yankees are absolutely ecstatic if he's a four or five, four player for the next few years. Um, okay. Even, but even if he, if he takes a bit of a step back and he's more of like a three war player for a few years, that's still a good player to get at this price. Like, like, I think this is an, a really nice contract for the Yankees. I think it needed to happen for them. LeMahieu clearly loves playing at Yankee stadium. Like it's, it's, it's great for him. He's, he's playing better baseball than he has his entire mm-hmm. career. Uh, of course, a lot of his value earlier on in his career was as a very, uh, very good defender. I think that's a skill that he's probably going to be losing much faster than his, than his hitting tool as he ages. Yeah. Uh, but if you ask, could he play serviceable innings at first base for a while? I I'd say yes. Like he still looks pretty good. Oh yeah. No, I, I certainly, I certainly think he's, he's a guy who can play around the infield and at least give you like average defense. I'm, I just don't think he's going to be more of like a, right. a, a guy who's like giving you a lot of value with his glove as he was earlier in his career with the Rockies. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, I love this. I mean, like this deal maybe made more sense than like any other deal that happened this offseason. Yeah, it was a slam dunk. Yeah, it was a slam Um, dunk. And and like you said, you know, I love the Kluber flyer for the Yankees. I mean, one year 11, you're yeah, you're getting a guy that's been injured, but you're getting a guy who like last time he was healthy was a, a Cy Young contender like. Kluber's not so far removed from being one of the, you know, the five best pitchers in baseball. I'm not saying he's going to be that again, but like when, when you have the team you already have in the Yankees, that's the type of guy you want to take a flyer on and like, see if you can, if you can hit it bit. Right. And I mean, just, this is a guy who literally last time he was healthy, this is not a, Oh, he was unhealthy and then he didn't perform. This is like literally the last time he was healthy. He was a Cy Young contender. So yes, he's 35, but he he has been good as a close to 30 and over 30 for almost his entire career. And I just I just think at 11 million dollars, like it's such a slam dunk. It's so obvious. Um, I'm surprised no one was like, we'll give you 11 and a half. Or maybe they did. And Corey Kluber wanted to play for the Yankees and have a shot at winning another ring. But this is a great signing for the Yankees. Is it possible he pitches no useful innings this season? Yeah. But does that make it a bad signing? Not necessarily, because if they have the money to play with, they have the opportunity here to absolutely bulletproof their rotation, right? If you think about who they could have, they could have Cole, they could have Paxton, Sevy, Tanaka, and Corey Kluber. 
If all those guys are healthy, what the hell type of rotation is that? That's just yeah. insane. They can go into the playoffs and literally only throw like two relievers. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they're, you know, for, I feel like all the story was on the Padres and the Mets this offseason as trying to get close to the Dodgers. And we sort of forgot that the Yankees are really already very close to the Dodgers. And this maybe puts them on par with the Dodgers. The Yankees potentially have been better than the Dodgers, but injured over the last two seasons, a whole slew of injuries. And so are they kind of bound for a healthy year? If they are, Jesus, this team will be scary. Um, But in that division, the other teams aren't rolling over. And the team that's really making the biggest splash is the Jays. The Jays went out and they got George Springer, much to Sam Chagrin. They got George Springer for six years, 150 mil. I'll, I'll read the others and then we'll go back to that because, wow. They got Kirby Yates for 155. Um, they also signed Ooh. Tyler Chatwood as a bit, but one year, yeah. one year, five and a half, not 55. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one year, five and a half decimals are important people. Yeah. Um, the big one there, obviously though, is George Springer to compliment an already, uh, very exciting looking lineup. But what jumps out to me, Sam, is we just talked about LeMahieu. George Springer is only one year younger than LeMahieu and he is getting so much more here. I do not believe that their value reflects properly. In fact, I think over the course of the six years, LeMahieu actually provides more value than George Springer does. What do you think? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I think maybe LeMahieu could be a better candidate to age, but like Springer, Springer has been a better player than LeMahieu over the last four to five years. I mean, he's, he, he's perennially a, perennially a guy that's going to put up, you know, four or five war. He has a tremendous track record as, as a hitter, as a guy who can play center field. I do think he'll probably move to a corner spot within a couple of years on this deal as he ages, but yeah, six years at 150, that is a hell of a lot. Uh, and, you know, you said much to my chagrin as the, you know, Springer was really rumored to end up on the Mets for the entire off season and, you know, until they traded for Lindor and it seemed as if their, their new priority was to get a Lindor extension and then sort of how does the money work with, with Springer. And, and at the end of the day, the way it's been billed to a lot of Mets fans uh, through the media. And I don't know if this is actually the consideration was that it was basically between the Springer contract and trying to do an extension with Michael Conforto and if, if I have my choice between those two, I I'm going to pick the Conforto extension. I mean, Springer has been a, has, does have a bit of a better track record than Conforto, but Conforto's three years younger, you know, within the last couple seasons, I don't think there's been much of a difference between them in terms of production as a hitter. Um, well, I mean, there has been, there's been about five wins, but. Yeah, well, last season Conforto was probably a better hitter, but again, it was sixty. It was sixty games, but yeah, you know. Uh, no, but I agree with you. The three, the three years younger is the important part, right? Like, because if you think about them giving six years to to two of the guys, getting six years where the last three are the first two years of George Springer's contract is a yeah, big exactly. deal. And, 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 you know, for me, it's also, you know, let's say you, you think their production is going to be somewhat similar over the next six years. Like I'm also going to like 
choose a bit of my emotional attachment to like Conforto, who's a guy I've like right. watched, like be a homegrown player in the Mets organization. And we talked about this sort of when we talked about the Blake Snell trade for the Rays that like, yeah, part of being a fan is wanting your team to like be as good as they possibly can. But another part of being a fan is like having those homegrown players that you can watch, like stay with the organization for many years. And like you, you get an emotional attachment to these players. Right. Um, so yeah, so the thing with the Jays is that they made a lot of splash here. And I think, you know, before I, before I finish this, I I will go back to George Springer just very briefly and say that I, I, I see where you're coming from, but I still think when you compare them and you look at George Springer, like it, it doesn't look like he's slowed down, but he's never really been a good defender in the outfield if we're just being honest with ourselves, he's been a very good hitter, but a fair amount of his value has been tied in his speed. He gets on base. Well, he K's at an understandable clip. And since he started his launch angle revolution, he's hit for a good amount of power. I don't know how long it'll hold up, but either way, obviously they're both guys you'd love to have on your team. Um, and so the Jays here are fighting. And another part of that was signing Kirby a two at one year, five and a half, like doesn't look that big, but if we're just being honest, like Kirby Yates was maybe the best reliever in baseball in 2019. And he was just injured last year and to get him at five and a half. Like when I'm looking at him and then don't forget the Dodgers gave Blake Trinan two 18 and a half which is like the two-year commitment is harder already. And then the, av- the, the average annual value is higher. I'd rather have Yates. Yates is closer to being the best version of himself. He has an understandable reason for stopping his performance, which is that he was injured and unable to pitch, whereas Blake Trinan has mysterious gaps in his resume. And Yates is... Yates has just really proven as a closer multiple seasons in his career and provides, I think, a ton of value to them. It allows a guy like Ken Giles to go more to a swing and setup role, which I think is much healthier for him and uh, really gives them an anchor at the back of the bullpen, I think, in the most likely scenario. Yeah, I think that I think I think everything you have to say about the Kirby Yates signing is is a really well taken point. I guess the question is, like, I just don't know how injured he was and like how much teams like think he's going to be at full strength when the season started right. when the season starts. But like, yeah, if you can get anything like the pitcher he was in 2019, like this is an absolute steal. Like you said, in 2019, he was more or less the best relief pitcher in baseball. 2018, he was also very, you know, very strong. Uh, I think another thing not to be lost in the Blue Jays discussion is like, they've been in on everyone in the off season. Like they were seeing as number two in, in the LeMahieu sweepstakes. They were seeing as number two in getting Lindor. Uh, they, they've like, they've really wanted to get another piece to put with that incredible young core they have in their lineup. And they've been doing everything they can to compete. And that's really commendable. You love to see a team doing that when so especially many, especially other- after they just played the full season in uh, Buffalo, New York or yeah. wherever they were. And especially when you see so many other teams cost cutting and just like not, trying to put a competitive product on the field. So Mm -hmm. I really, you know, you really want to commend the Blue Jays for what they're doing. And in that sense, yes, maybe the Springer contract is a bit of an overpay, but like, it's okay to do a bit of an overpay 
every now and then to get a player like George Springer in your organization, as long as you're not going to let it like hamstring you with future moves. Right. I, I agree with that. I mean, theoretically, if there's unlimited money, there's no such thing as an overpay, right? You just, so if you assume that the Jays have done this in a way where they still feel comfortable adding and they still feel comfortable being able to extend homegrown players because they have plenty that are going to come up in the next four years or so, then great. Good for them. You know, it's amazing that they were able to do this. Um, And I think evidenced by the fact that they've gone out and picked up some smaller pieces, but as we've just mentioned, very good pieces. Again, I'm looking at Kirby Yates, who was 99th or 100th percentile in expected ERA, expected WOBA, expected slugging, expected batting average, and K percentage in 2019, like literally the makeup of the best reliever of baseball. Um, Like, I think it shows that their head's on right, and I love that they're competing. And to give them even more credit, Sam, not only are we seeing them go out and try and compete in a year when many other teams are trying to cut pennies off the end of their payroll, they're doing it in a division that is so tough and just had a team go to the World Series, right? You look at yeah. teams in the NL Central pinch pennies when literally anybody with you know a set of stones could go out and win that division, and it's all the better and all the more exciting that the Jays are doing it. I just wish the rest of the league would follow suit the the jays the jays lineup now george springer kevin biggio Bo bichette teoscar hernandez flaggy jr lorgas guriel jr rowdy telez randall grichick and then like alejandro kirk and, and danny jansen at catcher like that is a dangerous dangerous lineup you'd love also, to see their start please don't poo poo my man danny jansen at catcher who may not be tremendous offensively yet but still has a lot of tools and is well beyond his years in calling a game. That guy's good behind the dish. Yeah. I mean, and, and Alejandro Kirk is of course, you know, a, a, a very memeable player that, that people I think are going to love for, <laughs> for years to come. And, you know, yeah, this, this lineup looks incredible. Of course, there's still big question marks in the starting rotation beyond, beyond, you know, Ryu, there's, there's no one that you're super excited about. Um, but, you know, with that lineup, this team's going to be in wildcard contention this year. And who knows, like maybe they make a run at the AL East. I don't think it's going to happen, but they're definitely going to make a run at the, at the wild card. Right. And they're also setting themselves up to, you know, continue to compete in the future. They really just need some pitching help. As you mentioned, they have huge in, they have Nate Pearson who, you know, is young and showed some flashes of being very good last year. I actually have a very good outlook for him. Um, they have Robbie Ray, who who the hell knows what we're going to see out of Robbie Ray next year. For those fantasy heads out there who are thinking they might get a steal on Robbie Ray, Robbie Ray is not a steal in next year's draft until the 15th round or later. Okay, if you reach in a 10-team league, if you reach for him before that, you are reaching. Um, and then they have Tanner Roark, who's going to eat some innings, but is, you know, Tanner Roark invented the five-inning four-run game. He's going to come in there. He's going to give up four. You're always going to be in danger, but he's always going to find a way out of very, very serious damage. And there's some value in that. So I agree. I think it's super exciting, but I'm not sure they're done, Sam. Another guy that they were tied to over and over and over again, and they ended up losing kind of signals to me that they still might be making signings. So that guy is Michael Brantley, who literally, you know, I think you texted me or, or, uh, or someone else texted us and said, uh, Jays get Brantley because it was all over Twitter. Like it was a done deal. 
And then later we find out actually that uh, the Astros were able to re-sign Michael Brantley for 232. But if they're, if they're ready to pay 32 mil for someone, they're going to add to their, to their roster, right? Like yeah, if, well, they're still going places. Yeah. I mean, and oh man, if they had added Brantley to the, to the lineup, that would have been absolutely huge. Uh, but like the, the Astros, you know, talking about a team that needed to re-sign one, someone in the Yankees with LeMahieu, I think for the Astros re-signing Brantley was almost as important. Uh, I mean, Brantley is just, I mean, he's also getting up there in age. He's almost 34, but like, he just, he's a professional hit, hitter. Like mm-hmm. he's just gonna, he's gonna keep hitting until he dies. Like, he just he doesn't miss the ball when it's thrown in the zone. I think he has like the highest zone contact rate of like any player in baseball. And he does he's not a slap picker when he does that. Like he punishes the ball as well. He's not hitting a ton of home runs, but he's he's a gap to gap guy who shows some power and again just has that elite contact profile and can also walk at a decent rate. So, you know, Brantley is a really, really, really good hitter. And it, you know if the Blue Jays had gotten him, that would have been absolutely amazing. I mean, him and George Springer are reportedly best friends, which is why it seemed like such a a good deal, Mm -hmm. you know, good situation for the Blue Jays, but he ended up going back to the Astros and that's, that's huge for the Astros. It is big for the Astros because the Astros are kind of facing some difficult times ahead, I think. And, you know, they have a lot of guys who are coming close to the end of their contract. They're not going to be able to re-sign Altuve, Bregman, and Correa. Um, You know, you're hoping that Kyle Tucker is holding down a lot of your outfield. But right now, your starting center fielder is Miles Straw, and your starting right fielder is Chaz McCormick before the signing of um, Brantley. So this roster needed help. Um, it needs help moving forward as they try and navigate this financial situation they're going to find themselves in. And I think Brantley, as you mentioned, while he is getting up there, he's a really good rock to have because he's a piece on your roster who even in his worst season, as long as he's healthy, you know, he will provide value. Yeah, definitely. Um, is there anything else? Oh, go yeah, ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say they kind of actually did that with another signing too, that we hadn't talked about yet, which is that the Astros went ahead and picked up Jason Castro for two, for two years, six and a half. Now, Jason Castro is not turning any heads, right? Like he's not crushing the ball um, in any way, but Jason Castro is a very, very solid defensive catcher. Um, he knows how to work with pitchers like Zach Reinke, who can be extremely finicky. And you know what? For a catcher, he's been okay the last couple seasons. A 103 WRC plus for the Twins in 2019. And as a catcher with good defense, who is not even their primary catcher. Like that's, I think, very valuable because most backup catchers are an automatic out or they're an automatic pass ball, right? There, There's very few catchers who are rounded like him, um, but he's a very, very good defensive player. Had 23.1 defensive runs um, on Fangraph's metric in 2016, which is extremely high. Um, and he he's continued to perform. So I, I think another smart move um, from the Astros, it's not too flashy. Fantasy leagues don't care about it. Um, nobody but Astros fans probably care about it, but it's what it takes to build a roster that is going to be able to compete in a 162 game season where shit happens, people get injured, people get tired, people don't perform. And then you have to find a way to play 162, make it into the playoffs and then play toss ups 
you know, for the championship. And this is what you got to do to win those. So while I think the Astros have a big uphill battle against them to compete um, league-wide, I think they'll be okay in their division still, but league-wide next season, um, they make some good kind of under-the-table signings here. And uh, that's all I have on Houston. Yeah, and then uh, another team that's worth talking about is as as two team. We just talked about two teams in the AL East, the Yankees and Blue Jays, doing a lot to continue to compete. The Red Sox tried to parry with moves of their own. I can't say they're quite as exciting as the Yankees and Blue Jays moves, but the Red Sox sign uh, Dodger longtime Dodgers uh, utility man Kike Hernandez to a two-year, $14 million contract, and they sign Garrett Richards to a one-year, $10 million contract. Uh, Which one of these do you want to talk about first? Do you have any thoughts on either? My thoughts in general are I'm starting to feel like the Red Sox are a poorly run organization. Not that either of these signings are like particularly bad, because I actually think like that Kike price is either exactly what he is owed or a little bit under it. Um, Garrett Richards is like a little high, but you know, I kind of agree with the sentiment you proposed last episode, Sam, which is no such thing as a bad one year deal. But when you look at what the Red Sox are doing, what are they doing? Right? Like are these pieces supposed to be a part of a formula to compete in the American league East? And if they're not, why are you going out to get them? Why are you spending one year 10 on Garrett Richards who might throw zero innings for you as opposed to spending one year 10 on some type of innings even, right? Like, are you trying to compete or not? And if you are, this is a pathetic excuse for it. So I like the Kike signing. I don't mind the Garrett Richards signing. It looks absolutely moronic compared to 111 for Corey Kluber, but that's neither here nor there. The question I have is for the Red Sox organization. Do you know what you're doing? And if you do, can you tell us or what's going on? Yeah. And of course, like what's always going to be with the story with the Red Sox over the next couple of years is like, they just gave away Mookie Betts for nothing. Right. Because. Because they wouldn't pay the money to sign him. Because I don't know why. Right. Exactly. So it's like, it's never really going to feel like they're trying to compete because they have the second best player in baseball. If you're going to compete, you want to keep having the second best player in baseball and they can do that. So, you know, like how can you give them any good faith as in like a team that's trying to do something serious and compete after the Mookie Betts fiasco? And it's like, yeah, you, you said it yourselves. Are these bad moves in a vacuum? No, No. but they're the types of moves you make when you're rounding out a roster that is meant to be competitive, right? They're not, they're not the type of moves that you, you make these moves and you say, Hey, these are our big moves. These off season. It's pathetic. It's also not the type of moves that you make when you're saying, Oh, we're not competing this season. We're just trying to fill out a roster with, with major league players and save budget. Like, so it fits nowhere. I think you said about in a vacuum, fine. In reality, what are you doing? So, you know, shout out to Kike, um, who, uh, you know, a lot, there is some uh, miscommunication. Uh, Kike is not Jewish, but uh, Jock Peterson, his old teammate is. So I do want to clear that up. Um, 
the Red Sox will uh, stay without any Jewish players on their roster, unfortunately, for another year, um, which will, I think, make them the only team in the AL East, as don't forget, Rowdy Telez is a Jew from Mexico City uh, on the Blue Jays. A lot of people. I did not that. know that, actually. Yeah, a lot of people forget about that. Well, who's, so, who's, the, who's the Yankees uh, Jew? Uh, I mean, their whole front office. It doesn't really count, but, <laughs> but it, it is really their whole front office. Um, well, so but, but the, Red, the Red Sox have Chaim Bloom. Well, that's a good point. He, he wears a keypad award. <laughs> what am I talking about? That's my bad. Um, let's let's talk about a trade now because we've had a lot of signings. We'll mention a few more signings in a bit, but um, let's talk about a trade because this was pretty fun. And we've gotten through a lot of the big names, the big division. You know, we have the classic East Coast bias, so we had to talk about the AL East. Um, but now we'll get back to the rest of the league. And this was a three-team banger. Sam, I think you know what I'm about to say here. We had Joe Musgrove of Pirates Brawling fame on the move last week. The Padres acquired Joe Musgrove. The Pirates in return get Hudson Head, David Bednar, Omar Cruz, Drake Fellows, and Andy Rodriguez, who is actually a Met. And then the Mets out of that get Joey Lucchese from the Padres. So it's a little bit of, uh, he said, she said, pods dealt, pirates dealt, Mets got. Um, but I think in the end, I like the move for all three parties. How do you feel, Sam? Yeah, I mean, the Padres just, they're just never going to stop. And, they're never uh, going to stop. It's impossible for them to stop. And Musgrove is a guy who really had a, a breakout season for the Pirates last year. He struck out 12 and a half batters per, per nine, of course, only in, in 40 innings, uh, you know, walked a few more batters than you'd like. But I mean, he looks like a guy that, you know, maybe isn't going to be an ace, but can be a, a really solid number two, number three in most rotations. And he's basically slotting into, you know, the number four or five spot with this Padres rotation. I mean, what a, you know, what a, what a mammoth this, this Padres starting rotation is turning into. Um, and yeah, well, I, I mean, want to, uh, sorry, I, I want to, and I didn't think I was going to have to play this role because I love Joe Musgrove. Like I absolutely love the way he plays. I, I think he's awesome, but I don't think your characterization of him is necessarily correct. I certainly think his upside is a two, but I, I think Joe Musgrove is like pretty solidly a, an amazing four and a middling three. Um, he was better last year. And if he's obviously, if he's able to strike out 12 and a half per nine, like that's very powerful, but that was 40 innings. You know, I'm not really, I'm not really buying that. And if you look at the rest of his career, like he pitches, he goes out and he competes, right? He K's a decent number of guys. He keeps the walks to a reasonable level. He keeps the ball in the park. All right. Like he's just a very well-rounded average pitcher. Um, I, I, I believe there's room for growth. Like I like him, but to say that he's like a two or a three caliber piece, I, I would not necessarily agree with that characterization. Uh, fair enough. I, I guess what it's going to come down to is just how much stock you want to put in his performance last year. And, you know, like, like you often say, you know, if someone has like a small sample size breakout performance, if you're going to put some stock in it, you want to basically be able to point to something and say, what's something different that he did. And if we're trying to trying to do that for Joe Musgrove, I think what you're going to say is 
he started throwing his fastball a lot less because it's not that good. And he started throwing <laughs> and he started throwing his his curveball a lot more because it's it's quite good. Um and you know, his curveball was his most effective pitch this this past year in terms of run value. Uh his slagger's always been pretty effective. Uh and yeah, so I think you know, can he continue to succeed by sort of just like scrapping, scrapping the fastball and just going, going with these two good breaking pitches. And if he can, then maybe you view this as like a turning point in his career and a bit of a breakout, but maybe, you you know, you're right. It was only 40 innings. He could come back down to earth, but I, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's another great arm to add to that rotation. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I think you make a really good point. There's a couple of things I want to say here. One, I think you make a good point. Two, I might actually argue that it's less that he's killing the fastball for breaking pitches. He's killing the fastball for the cutter. He's killing the changeup for the curveball. So what he's doing is he's just generally changing the look he's taking with players because his fastball, he throws up and into a righty. His cutter, he throws away, which is unusual a bit, but he throws away from a righty or maybe throws it into lefties. It's hard to say with the data is not really that granular, but the changeup goes the opposite way of the slider and the curveball. So he's just changing the way those pitches are coming in, probably benefiting from the way we look at tunneling right now and the better understanding we have of pitch mixes and how pitches play off each other. And if that's true, he just did the single best thing he could possibly do for himself because what we know as baseball fans is the best way to develop a pitcher is to get him out of Pittsburgh. So (laughs) what he's, what he's done right now is he's immediately jumpstarted his career by going literally anywhere, but Pittsburgh. Um, And I, I certainly see a possibility here for him to be, you know, for a five win pitcher, even maybe over the next year or two um, within the next year or two. So I love this for the pods. Like I said, I think it's a great pickup. Um, the, let's talk about the other major leaguer because that's the one we know. And of course, he went to your squad, Sam. So, do you like the Mets getting Lucchese? Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, Lucchese's a guy who, you know, he doesn't have flashy stuff. In fact, he has absolutely unflashy stuff. But, <laughs> but like, he he's someone who can be an effective fourth, fifth starter by you know changing speeds, showing good control throwing his little 58 mile per hour slurve that he can sort of throw. (laughs) He can throw this breaking ball, like in a bunch of different angles, different velocities. And he's just, you know, he's not an ace, but he's like, like I said about the Red Sox moves, like they seem like moves you make when you're trying to round out a contending team. That's what the Mets are trying to do. They're trying to round out a contending team with some depth and, Pitching depth is something that's really hurt the Mets in recent memory where, you know, last year when Syndergaard was gone, Stroman, you know, opted out, like they threw, they had some guys, some really bad guys throwing innings for them all season. And I think Sandy Alderson looked at this roster and said, this is a roster that can compete. Let's give it a little pitching depth such that, you know, if one of our pitchers goes down for an extended period of time, we have an answer. We have someone who can eat those innings in an effective way. And it's not just an auto loss when we're throwing our fifth starter. So like, yeah. And I just think like, if you're looking at their depth chart, 
right? He immediately leapfrogs Steven Matz and David Peterson. And I would much rather have him than both of them. So I think a mix of, of those three guys is going to eat north of 200 innings this season. So I want the Lions, I want as much of those as possible to go to Joey Lucchese, right? Previously, they were all going to Steven Matz and David Peterson. And so I think this is uh, really good for them. He's a hysterical pitcher, by the way, because he just doesn't throw a four-seam fastball. He pretty much only throws sinker curve cutter. And everything is slow except his cutter, which is randomly pretty fast. And he's got the weirdest mechanics. If you haven't seen him pitch, go to YouTube and look him up. He, he, he's got body parts flailing everywhere. It's a guy who I think could be extremely, extremely good in uh, limited usage sets, three, four innings at a time, money. I, I don't want him on the hill for six innings. But that three-pitch mix can work really well one time through a lineup. And the Mets could unlock something here. I, I really like this for them as well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we talked about Musgrove and, and Lucchese and their, their nice pieces, I think, for the Padres and Mets. But, you know, I also think there's a nice coherent logic to what the, Padre, what, to what the Pirates did here, which is the Pirates aren't going to compete this year. They're not going to compete next year. Let's get something out of the talent we have. So they got a lot of prospects in this, in this trade from the, from the Pirates. I think the headliner is Hudson Head, who is a, who's an outfielder. Uh, and then the, the, the prospect they got from the Mets is, again, not one of the Mets' top prospects, but he's, he's a teenage catching prospect with some athleticism, some upside. You know, of course, these guys often flame out and don't do anything, but if, if you strike on an athletic catching prospect, like, you get a good catcher, like, that's the hardest thing to do in baseball. So, right. You know, or even just an athletic catching prospect can go to shortstop. They can become a, a pitcher. Like they can go to center field. It, it happens all the time. Like it's a good, it's a good place to be as a prospect. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I like the return for the pirates. Uh, I'm not sure what the market was for someone like Musgrove um, again, because like, you know, if he, if he continues what he did last year, then maybe it's a bit of a light return, but you know, it depends how much stock you want to put in that. Um but also, like, I like the way the Pirates did this, to be honest. They look at Joe Musgrove and they go, okay, the best, if we wanted to max out on single prospect, um, like, future value, maybe, or, like, the most heralded single prospect we could get, I believe it's not somebody who makes a difference in their organization significantly. So instead, what they do is they take five guys who all are lesser than the possible best value they could have gotten, but cumulative, I think, have much higher value, and they spread out that risk a bit. I think this is the right thing for the Pirates to do. It goes along with the Josh Bell trade. The only question I have is why didn't they start doing this sooner? In what world were they competing last year? Why didn't they trade Josh Bell and Joe Musgrove after 2019 when they were at even higher value? Um, so well, you, you I, could I, argue Musgrove's at higher value now but you could, you could argue that. Yeah. You, you definitely could argue that. Um, but bell definitely was, I think together, probably the package was a little higher or it was the same, but it makes your rebuild faster. Like, I don't know what they were waiting for, but it's good to see him start doing it now. So I think three teams enter this, uh, this gauntlet and three teams leave happy with a reasonable return. Yeah. So then like, while we're on the topic of the Padres, they made sort of a, a, a move to round out their depth as a contender. 
they signed Yerkson Profar to a three-year, $21 million contract to, to stay in San Diego, who he was with last season. He actually had a really nice season for them last year, probably the best season of his career. Um, I mean, definitely the best season of his career. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, what I see it as is sort of Profar is definitely a really nice player to have on your bench if you're the Padres. Three years, 21 is does seem like a pretty big commitment for a guy that's going to be spending a lot of time on the bench, though. Yeah, so that's basically my feeling. And this goes in hand, hand in hand with the signing that they had of the Korean player um, last for the last episode that we were on. Like, they signed they signed this middle infielder who they maybe think can play some outfield um, Korean born player who is basically jerks and profar from what I can tell. And then they're also signing jerks and profar. I don't like jerks and profar as a player, right? He was the number one prospect in baseball for a while. He was just absolute trash for his first four seasons in the majors. He had a bit of a breakout in 2018. Um, and then has like been getting everyday reps, but he's kind of a nightmare. Like he how doesn't old, pick how, up. How old do you think Jerickson Profar is? Okay, well Unless I can't see it. No, no, I can't see it right now. But I know he came up at like nineteen, so he must be twenty six or seven. Yeah, he's twenty seven, but it feels yeah. like he's been around for forever. Like it's he has like, because yeah. he came up so young. Yeah, um, but. I just don't like him. So like, do I think that he's worth the same amount as Kike Hernandez? Like, yeah, they're kind of similar, actually. They're, they're kind of similar players. They both got seven years uh, average annual, but why are the Padres like desperate to put three years at this guy? They could put three years, 21 into a better backup catcher. And I think get more value, especially if they see this Korean player who they just put money into as like being a part of their team. I, I, again, I don't, think the contract is bad i don't think the move is necessarily bad but i wonder with the padres like why do you have so many middle infield utility players who are kind of light hitting now i guess cronenworth has a bit of pop but like it just seems like too much invested in a singular area that like you have covered with your best players yeah i think that i think that's a, a fair point of view uh so I think that the last thing to round out our baseball discussion is let, let's just talk about a trio of sort of one year signings of veteran pitchers. Uh, the Nats signed John Lester to a one year, $5 million contract. The angels signed Jose Quintana to a one year, $8 million contract. And the twins signed J.A. Happ also to a one year, $8 million contract. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of these signings? Which one's your favorite? Which one's your least favorite? I mean, I don't know. They're all like old guys, for lack of a better word. Like they're all older pitchers, you know, who are a bit past their prime already. Um, I think, I think I like Quintana the best because I could just see Quintana as like the most likely to have an 180 to 200 inning season and like keep his ERA below four and a quarter, even though he hasn't done that for two years, um, which is, which is valuable, especially for a team like the angels who can never seem to find enough innings. So I think I like that signing the most out of all of them. Um, but I do like Lester more than half as well, because I actually think half should be out of baseball. I, I don't know what he's still doing floating around. Like I, 
as far as I can tell watching games, like he just literally cannot get batters out. I guess he was okay last season over 50 innings. Um, but I, I don't know about Hap. I guess he maybe fits for the twins, but Lester's changing his, his um, pitch mix as he gets older. He really struggled when his fastball velocity dipped in 2018. Um, and then he's like started to figure it out again. And I think he 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 had a five ERA last year. Yeah, but struck out six batters per nine. Well, I don't think he's going to K anybody, but he might be able to work around some of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a five ERA in sixty innings, but I think I think he's basically a little worse than Quintana, right? Which is what the contracts were. I no, I I guess I don't. I think Quintana is by far the best of these three pitchers. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you just look at what he's done over the past, you know, six years or something, like he's just consistent, like 2013, three and a half, four, 2014, 4.9, 15, 4.3, 4.9, year with the Cubs, 1.6, second year with the Cubs, 3.4. And then last year he only threw 10 innings, but like, I mean, he's a guy that's just been a, a, a good major league starter for like seven years now. And I mean, to, to get but like his, year, his ERA has been like four, two for the last two or his FIP has been four, two for the last two years. Basically. I, I don't that's, know. That's, that's, that's way better than you're going to get from Lester or, or J.A. Happ. I mean, it's not that much different. Like, yeah, last year it was Lester was so bad last year. But 2019, his FIP was 425. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I just think Lester's totally washed. But I think Hap's totally washed. Yeah, I mean, I, they both might be. <laughs> but they but that's why, be. That's that's why, why like Quintana's him. the best, though. That's what I said as yeah, well. But, but, but also, you know, now that we've discussed these three, like, let's go back. Like, Kluber was one year 11. Like, that's not that much more <laughs> than, like, <laughs> like these eight. guys are getting. Like, like, why was no one willing to go a little higher on that? I I feel like Kluber must have wanted to go to the Yankees, right? I haven't read anything yeah. about that, but it just feels like so many other deals for pitchers, 110 for Richards, 1-8 for Quintana, 1-8 for Hap. I think especially to substitute for Hap, especially that substitution, the Twins would have, I think, shelled out three more million dollars. It makes me feel like Kluber had a preference. Um, and who knows but i agree with you the, every single other signing of a pitcher we mentioned this episode made me feel better about kluber and before we wrap the mlb up here sam i do want to pick your brain what are you thinking about the free agent market so far because a lot of these signings are kind of giving me the impression or solidifying my belief that the new free agent paradigm is the the best guys on the market are getting paid and everybody else is feasting on scraps. I, yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And I was actually reading a, a piece on fan graphs from, from Dan Zimborski after the Springer signing where he basically made the point that it, it might be that what we're seeing is that the, the cost of a win on the free agency market, which for a long time has been sort of empirically found to be like a linear relationship where on average we're seeing like seven or $8 million per win above replacement on the free agency market. 
over the, the projection of the contract. What we might be seeing now is that this might become a big of a nonlinear relationship where these one to two win guys are going to start making less and these, you know, four or five, six win guys are going to start making more. And I guess that's, that starts, that makes some sense because, you know, it's easier to find these one, two win guys. They're, they're a dime a dozen. Whereas finding, finding stars like George Springer, you know, that's much harder. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense, um, but it is, it is looking like the new reality of free agency. And I think that's why we haven't seen a guy like Bauer sign yet, because the way that free agency works now, it doesn't seem like a guy comes out and we say, oh, we know what his value is. It says, let's see what this free agent period looks like, right? Like, let's see what teams are throwing around in terms of total dollar bills. And uh, then we'll know how much this guy's worth. So it's a different ball game out there right now. I think it may be a big part of the next collective bargaining agreement um, coming up at the end of next season. I always say the wrong season, but it's coming up. Um, I think it'll be a part of it because I think there's legitimate grievances by the players union. Um, and we'll have to see how those play out. But with that, it's been our great pleasure to bring you all of the latest and greatest news in major league baseball. Certainly we are itching, itching, itching for pitchers and catchers to report in. It's gotta be like five weeks now. We're on the official countdown middle of February. Um, after Sam so gleefully alerted me in last week's episode, um, and we'll be we'll be ramping up baseball even more as we get closer. But the sport that is the closest to completion at this point, Sam, will be our final topic of the episode, and that is the National Football League, led by most realistic android in the world, Robert or Roger Goodell. <laughs> I, I kind of like his name is Robert, actually. Um, <laughs> and in the NFL, we had uh, a couple bits of news and some playoff games last week. So where do you want to start? Let's start with the news that has set the the NFL on fire, which is that the Houston Texans have managed to alienate one of the three, you know, at worst, five best quarterbacks in the NFL in Deshaun Watson. <laughs> at worst. And that's being extremely harsh. I yeah. Yeah. So basically they told Deshaun Watson he would be involved in the hiring process of their general manager and coach. They hired a general manager without consulting him at all. They, they had asked Deshaun Watson had requested that they interview Eric Bieniemy and Robert Sala for their head coaching position. They were the only team that didn't interview Robert Sala who is now the head coach of the New York Jets and will lead the New York Jets to a Super Bowl championship. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they did interview Eric Bieniemy after um, Deshaun Watson got mad. But basically, you know, Adam Schefter reported and others have reported that there is a growing feeling that Deshaun Watson has played his last game with the Houston Texans. He's not returning, returning the phone calls of anyone on the team. He is reportedly extremely, extremely angry with the organization. And how could you not be after they sort of inexplicably traded his best weapon this past offseason and DeAndre Hopkins lied to him and told him that he would be part of a process in moving this team forward and then didn't take his, his viewpoint into consideration. It's like, no, didn't even bother to get his viewpoint. That's the crazy thing is like, maybe you could be like, all right, well, if he felt differently, but they really love this guy, that's one thing. 
But just not asking him is just disrespect because maybe he would have been like, oh, yeah, I love the decision you made. They just didn't ask. Yeah, and he wasn't even asking to make the decision. He just wanted his input to be included, which is totally rational when you are one of the best quarterbacks in the league and the hiring decisions that are being made are going to affect your ability to win a Super Bowl in this window of the next five years. But, you know, now that he reportedly wants out, there is, of course, rampant speculation as to where he might be triggered to. Of course, he is willing reportedly to maybe sit out and not play, in which case force the Houston Texans hand to trade him. And an interesting dynamic in the situation is that he was also given a no trade clause in his most recent contract extension with the Houston Texans, which is not something you typically see in NFL contracts. It's more of an NBA type situation. So effectively Deshaun Watson has all the power right now. He can decide where he wants to go uh, and he can force the Texans hand to trade him there. Um, So now the question is where might he end up today? A report came out saying his top two preferred destinations are the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins uh, with the New York Jets at number one. Uh, of Where, course, what was this report? Like jetscentral.com? What uh, it's, quarterback it's, in football says their number one destination is the New York Jets? Uh, reportedly, it was from a Miami Herald reporter. Uh, reportedly, a reputable re- paper. Reportedly, the reason beyond it is that he is a massive believer believer in Robert Sala. Uh, really? Wait, who even is this guy? Robert Sala and Aaron, of course, uh, showing his uh, ignorance of football, as always. Uh, <laughs> Ro- Robert Sala is the the four, was the 49ers defensive coordinator for the past four years. You might have seen he's he's the the ripped bald guy. That oh, you always okay, see getting okay. held yeah, back, yeah, 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 held yeah. back on the sideline. Uh, oh, that's insane! I love that. Yeah, huge. He, 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 he's 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 beloved by his players. Uh, you you've had Richard Sherman go on record, basically being like Deshaun Watson should get out of Houston, go to the Jets. Richard Sherman absolutely loved playing under Robert Sala the last few years, and Deshaun Watson has apparently you know, taken his reputation and thinks very, very highly of Robert Sala. That's why he requested that the Houston Texans interviewed him and they were the only team to not do so of all the teams with head coach openings. So I'm not going to get too excited yet. Well, yeah, I am, but you know, I mean, in fairness to you, the jets do have the best trade package to offer back. Like they could give that number two pick and, and they also, they also have additional, they also have additional first round picks in this year's draft and next year's draft from the Jamal Adams trade. Uh, mm. They also have Sam Darnold as a trade chip um, and, reportedly, yeah, and immediately NFL ready quarterback to slot yeah. back in. And reportedly Josh McCown is actually now being considered for the head coaching vacancy for the Houston Texans. Oh, and I the connect- the connection there is that Josh McCown was Sam Darnold's backup and mentor during Sam Darnold's rookie season with the Jets and they reportedly formed a very close like brother like relationship so you could see if Josh McCown gets hired loving getting Darnold back in that package Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah I mean the the Jets and Dolphins definitely have the two best packages available to trade for Watson but again the key the key thing here is that Watson has this no trade clause, so it's not necessarily going to become a bidding war. If he decides this is the team I want to go to, the Texans are basically just going to have to deal with that team, and that team's going to have the Texans in a bind. 
because they they the Texans have no bargaining power if Deshaun Watson basically doesn't let them make it into a bidding war. If it is a bidding war, I mean, Jamal Adams just got two first-round picks. He's a safety. He's maybe one of the top three to five safeties in the league. Deshaun Watson could, I mean, could he be worth four first-round picks, five first-round picks? I mean, for a guy that good at the quarterback position, like, they're, they're, like there's almost no comparison for it because no team has ever been stupid enough to have to trade a player as good as Deshaun Watson. It's basically mm-hmm. never happened. So, I'm, I'm actually just like, I forgot about that Josh McCown thing. And now I'm just shocked. Like how would anybody want to hire Josh McCown over Eric Bieniemy, Who's literally yeah, run, I mean, like the NFL's best offense for the last four years. Right. Yeah, and, and of course, this is this has been something that's been discussed in the current NFL hiring hiring cycle, which is that there have been no black head coaches hired so far. The Houston Texans have the only opening, and this is something the NFL has been trying to fix with the Rooney Rule. Uh, but basically, like black head coaches just aren't getting head coaching. Black coaches are not getting promoted to head coaching jobs, despite the the fact that you know black players make up a lot of the league. Um, and Eric, the enemy, I mean, like how, like, how is he not, like him and Robert Sala were basically considered the top two head coaching yeah. candidates going into the cycle. How do none of these teams hire Eric, the enemy? I mean, like people, the NFL, have, by the way, is almost 70% African-American. Yeah. Pe- people have said, you know, he doesn't call plays with Andy Reid. He's not a good interview. If you watched his interview the other day, like that guy is as personable as it gets, like bullshit that he's not a bullshit <laughs> yeah. that he's not a good interviewer. And then like he Agreed. doesn't call plays. The Lions just hired Dan Campbell, who doesn't call plays. Uh the Eagles just hired the Colts offensive coordinator who doesn't call plays with the Colts. Like I like it's just so part of I think what's hurt Eric Bieniemy, and I think it also hurt Brian Dable, the, the Bills offensive coordinator in this hiring process is that if your team is still in the playoffs, you can't go into the building for a second interview with these teams. Mm. And I think a lot of the teams like don't want to wait till the end of the Super Bowl, which is what it's going to be for Eric Bieniemy. You know, he's on the, he's, he's with the chiefs to, right. to hire their coach because, you know, they're going to miss out on all the other candidates if this coach doesn't pick them. So I, I think the NFL really needs to consider this, in like, like a the, hiring freeze until after the playoffs or something. Some I don't know. I don't know what. Or the just right change thing. the rule. Just let them go back into the building. Yeah, I I don't know what the right solution is, but it clearly has seemed like coaches whose teams are still in the playoffs are at a significant disadvantage in the hiring process, mm-hmm. and a lot of the top block candidates this this time are still in there. Like in Leslie Frazier, the defensive coordinator of the Bills, and Eric Bieniemy the the offensive coordinator with the Chiefs. So that that's like and, and I also think it cost Brian Dable the Chargers head coach job. Mm-hmm. Um so you know of course I, I mean Eric Bianami has gotta become a head coach eventually. It'd be crazy if he doesn't but and if you're Houston, I don't see how you don't just offer this man every dollar you have to become your head coach to just hold on to you know possibly holding on to Deshaun Watson. I mean remember right. This is one of the two guys that Deshaun Watson requested you interview. Right. 
So anything like, you it, can do to repair the situation. And if Deshaun Watson still doesn't want to come back, all right, you still just got maybe one of the best young coaches in the league. You still got maybe the best guy on the market, at, maybe outside of Robert Sala. I, I, since you said that, I've, t- I've taken a look at a couple of things and people do think very highly of him, but one of the obvious best candidates on the market, like I, I agree with you. The opportunity to keep a generational franchise quarterback like Deshaun Watson is one that you should spend as much money as you possibly can doing. Um, a team that is parting ways with a once, I'm not going to call him that, but a franchise quarterback, somebody who I actually thought would play his whole career in Detroit. That's right. Matt Stafford and the Lions uh, apparently mutually agreed to part ways. What do you think about this? I think it was, I think it's time. I, the Lions organization has been fairly dysfunctional across Matthew Stafford's whole career. And Matthew Stafford is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in the NFL. He has been yeah. his entire career. I mean, yeah. like he, like as far as making difficult arm talent throws goes, like he might be second to no one, but Patrick Mahomes, like he can just make some of the most insane, no look throws. Like he's been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of teams that need a quarterback that should not think twice about parting with a first round pick for Matthew Stafford right now. I'm including in this, uh, the like Colts. All, t- all but 10 teams in the NFL, basically. Yeah. The, I mean, the oh, if the Colts could get Matthew Stafford for a first round pick, they'd be so good next year. Yeah, that, that'd, the, be no, that'd be a no brainer. Their first round pick's going to be late. Yeah. So, you know, Matthew Stafford, is he a top five quarterback in the league? I'm not sure, but I think he's, he's a top 10 when he's healthy. And mm-hmm. if there are a lot of quarterback Nicky teams that would love to have Matthew Stafford. Uh, and How I do you really... think the Pats would feel about having Matthew Stafford? Yeah. They don't want to run their offense through cam again next year. I'll tell you that he didn't play terribly, but he can't pass the ball. Yeah. I mean, he, he instantly makes a lot of teams with good rosters around them. What about the go... Broncos? Oh, the Broncos. Yeah. And, and and the Broncos have a high pick. They're like eight or nine. I think you do and, that. For and Stafford. they have a pretty, absolutely. You already yeah. actually have a pretty solid receiving core. You have a couple running backs who y- you wish that they were a little better, but they can catch the ball as well. in Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon Broncos are an amazing fit for him. I think actually. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, John Elway is constantly, constantly, constantly searching for that quarterback. <laughs> I think maybe yeah, a little bit too much. Maybe you should have just picked yeah. somebody already. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about the Broncos that that's a great spot for him. Yeah. I, I, I kind of like the idea, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's just tons of teams. Like even if I were the Eagles, I'd be like, yes, absolutely. I don't want, I don't want to play one more season with Carson Wentz. Um, so, you know, we'll see, but I, I, I'm happy for Stafford. You know, it had to have been so frustrating to play through all the Michigas that's happened in Detroit in his career. And I hope he gets to go to a place where he can contend. And honestly, I think there's very few places that he would go to where they would not be contenders. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say Niners. Oh, I like the Niners. One, one other thing about Stafford is like, he is reportedly like, about as tough as nails as it gets as like a competitor in the NFL. Like he was playing with like basically like broken ribs this year. He was asked like, you guys are out of the playoffs. Like, why are you still going out there? And he said, my job is quarterback of the Detroit lions. If I can play, if I can do my job, I'm going to do it. It's like, you know, 
you love, you know, as cliche as it sounds like, and I think this is true in the NFL more than any other league. Like it really is like a team sport where it's like, you got to set, like you sacrifice for the success of the entire team. The culture is so much, it's so important in the NFL compared to like other organizations. Mm -hmm. And you see it, it's like the teams that can build like a good competitive team culture are the ones that succeed for a decade at a time. Exactly. And it is a team sport and the offensive element of that team sport hinges around the quarterback. Yeah. It really doesn't run without the quarterback. And he's been that guy who's gone out there every single game that he possibly can in his career and competed his ass off. So I'll be excited to see where he goes. He instantly makes almost any team in the NFL better. Um, With that, let's just take a look at how the uh, NFL playoffs are shaping up and let's get out of here. So Packers take, uh, take over the Rams 32 to 18. Sounds kind of close. Never really was Packers looked good. Yeah. Rams never should have been there in the first place. It was kind of, yeah. And I, you know, we both picked the Packers to win the Super Bowl in our playoff prediction episode and, and they haven't shown me anything to change my pick yet. I think they've been the best team in the playoffs. Now, your other Super Bowl pick, however, Sam, <laughs> the uh, Baltimore Ravens did fall to the Bills um, 17 to 3. So the Bills are moving on just like I predicted they would. Um, yeah. And let me tell you, this was scary for the Ravens because their defense kept them in this game. And you have to now look at your roster if you're the Ravens. You're not going to like this take. You have to look at the roster if you're the Ravens and say, this isn't good enough offensively. Lamar Jackson is very good. No one's questioning that. He has the ability to pass the ball. He is obviously a very talented ball carrier. We need to do something to fix this. So is that get a big physical receiver who can go up and get the ball and block downfield? Yes. Are there other options as well? Yes. Like a a good and actually good running back. Those are all possibilities, but as constructed, Their offense is too predictable. It's not dynamic enough, and they cannot win big games like this. They almost showed it last week, and then they did show it this week. They also showed it last year in the playoffs. If I am the Ravens, I'm watching this window kind of close as my defensive players age a bit, and I'm saying we got to make a big move this offseason. I I hope they do. I'd love to see Lamar play in the Super Bowl. Yeah, and I, you know, Lamar is is a transcendent talent, but I do think the thing is, the Ravens have grown so comfortable with his transcendent running talent that they've wanted to build an offense around his unique talent. And they succeeded in doing that, but in doing that, they created an offense that is just not dynamic enough in the passing game. And that's fine when you're beating up on teams and you can play ball control and you can just, you can run Mm -hmm. it down their throats. But when you fall, when you, when you face, great teams like the chiefs or like the bills who just have quarterbacks that can score in two minutes. Like you can't fight them with, with this offense. And they, they need to, they need to add like they, I think, I don't, I think if they get a receiver, like a number, an actual number one receiver for Lamar and add some more like dynamic concepts to their passing offense, like I don't think they're that far off, but they need to rethink the way this offense works. I agree with you. And that's why the number one thing I said was a big physical receiver because they don't have it. They have speed. They have like four slot receivers who are, who are passable. 
but they don't have a number one receiver. They don't have a guy who can go play a big corner. Allen um, Robinson would be great for them. Allen Robinson would be a really good fit. He's going to, he's going to be on the jets with Watson, but you know, but you make a, <laughs> well, I don't know what world you're in. You make a great point about Here's this. the thing. You, you are not as geared into the social media accounts of Deshaun Watson as and Allen Robinson as I am. You haven't been following That's every true. tweet they've liked every Instagram post they've liked. You don't, you, you don't see the tea leaves being read before they've, before they've happened. Like I have, and that's fine. Okay. That's fine. Okay. But so I words. think you, I think you make a good point about the Ravens offense, which is that it's not just, they need somebody. They do need to change their approach. If you think about the Ravens and the chiefs, like the chiefs have an even more transcendent player than Lamar because he's close to as good a ball carrier and he's a much better passer. But I do think that the way that the Redskins offense is centered around letting Patrick Mahomes do some work, they could let Lamar do work with a slightly heavier focus on running the ball than the Chiefs do, and they would find great success. But the breakdown needs to be there. Right now, they're really not that big a threat to pass. He was attempting like crazy low amounts of passes per game. Um, and they, they need to check something out, but we'll, we'll see what they do. Speaking of the chiefs, they took the best game of the night. I thought over the Browns, 22 to 17. This was a game where the Browns just, they looked gritty and they didn't have it. They never had the game really, but they looked gritty. They stayed in there till the end. And if just one or two other things had broken their way, looking at you, um, a touchdown that went through fumbled through the back of the end zone they easily could have won this game so um did you see anything here sam well i mean of course the big story of this game was that patrick mahomes had to be removed with with concussion like symptoms uh he was just cleared to play in the afc championship game thank god that would have been so annoying if if we couldn't watch mahomes v allen tomorrow Um, you're only saying that because you have money on it well, yeah, but I also had a, I also got in on the Browns at ten to one when they were down fourteen points in that game. So, I was I was hoping they pulled it out at some point. Um, but yeah, uh, the Chiefs, while Mahomes was still in the game, looked really good. I don't get like how people have been fawning over how Chad Henney played when Mahomes went down. He didn't actually play well. I don't know. Like why he people... literally did nothing. Like he dumped yeah. two passes off to their running back. And he threw it one terrible interception. Like, I, I don't know why yeah. people are acting like Chad Henning saved the game. Uh, Especially because they just watched Taylor Heineke, the best fourth string quarterback <laughs> I've ever seen, put on a clinic two weeks before. They're going to come out there and compare the two performances. Slander. The yeah. Heineke crew will not stand for it. Yeah, but uh, like I said, Mahomes Allen – really have been, you know, they're two under 25 quarterbacks, maybe have the two best arms in football. Uh, it's just going to be, that game's going to be such a blast. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other game is going to go the other way. The two, the two best old quarterbacks in football, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers versus Tom Brady as uh, in the battle of, you know, the goats, not including pig and Manning, Tom Brady looked out. Drew Brees uh, took out Drew Brees, who frankly looked absolutely washed 
um, in that game. And for the, for the record, Tom Brady's six years older than Aaron Rodgers. They're both old. Like I couldn't yeah. believe Aaron Rodgers is 37, but Tom Brady is 43. So he's old. Yeah. Drew Brees. I think we saw play the last game of his incredible career. I think he's, I think so. Yeah. He's probably the, the third best quarterback ever behind Brady and Manning. Um, and it's really a shame that the Saints weren't able to get another Super Bowl or even back to another Super Bowl in this last like five, six year stretch with Breeze when they, they've just been so good every year and something always went wrong in the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a shame. They've that always they- had the receiving core. They've always had the running backs. They've always had a defense. Like it yeah. could have been there for them literally any year. And I feel like they've always just had one coin flip game. Like they've rolled the opponent opponents they're supposed to. And then like this Bucks game, it's, it was basically a coin flip game. Right. And yeah. they just couldn't win it. And over the last five or six years, they've lost every single one of those. Um, and that's not the way you get to the, to the bowl. The yeah, Super Bowl, that is. And, and it's also been on crazy stuff like the, you know, the digs catch like that went, you know, <laughs> 70 yards. Like it's, it's been on, on weird fucking shit like that too. Like, it, you know, I, I feel for, for Saints fans, I gotta say, but you know, yeah, but that, but that's a testament to how great Drew Brees is that he did win a Super Bowl and we're still being like, he should have won more. Um, because it's not, it's not easy to go win a Super Bowl, especially when the Patriots do it every other year. Um, only guy left in the playoffs who hasn't won a Super Bowl is Josh Allen. Uh, that is right. Uh, but you know. Both these games are like incredible storylines. I think are going to be really good games as well. The Buck, I could see the Packers blowing out the Bucks, but I I could also see the Bucks getting in a great shootout with them. You know that Bucks team is like really bipolar. Like sometimes their offense looks unstoppable, and sometimes it looks like it could never score again. Yeah. So here's the thing: is that. I think the Packers are going to route the Bucs here. I could see the shootout, but here's my thought process. A big part of the Bucs defense is their pass rush. Green Bay's offensive line has been sturdy this year. I'm not going to say they were like exceptionally the best in the league, but they have been sturdy and consistent this year. Um, the Bucks' main weapons are at the front. And what you need is you need a strong-ass cornerback and a helpful safety to contain Devontae Adams. Um, I don't see it happening then you start getting Robert Tanyan rolling out and even a guy like Devin white who absolutely can fly is not going to be able to keep up with them. Um, I think they're able to contain Aaron Jones. I wouldn't bet on a big game from Aaron Jones, but I, I do see the Packers coming in here and if they win by 10, I'm not even. And, and, and nobody is playing better football than Aaron Rodgers right now. No, he's he's just not, we're reminded why he's otherworldly when he's on, like he's so good. Yeah. And, and I can't really remember an analog to this, to a guy like, I mean, Aaron Rodgers like, hasn't, he hasn't been better than an average quarterback for like three or four years now. And like, he just sort of decided like, uh, all right. No, I'm still maybe the best quarter, the most talented quarterback to ever live. And I'm just going to win MVP yeah. again at 37 and just like make every single throw. And he was better than an average quarterback, Sam. Like if you're thinking about like the average quarterback in the league, let's talk about somebody like, Oh, I don't know. Um, 
uh, well, early Dak Prescott, not, not what Dak Prescott started looking like before he got hurt, but um, you know, just some guy who's like replaced Sam Darnold. Sorry. Like Sam Darnold's not average. He's way worse than average. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know how far in your own reality you were. I, I think Aaron Rodgers has been a little better than that, but you're right. He definitely, yeah. there were a lot of questions. Uh, you know, is he done? Is this his last season? Is he slowing down? The like, Packers drafted the quarterback in the first round this year. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That's a great point. And he was like, you guys are stupid. I can literally do whatever I want on a football field when I'm healthy. And he's probably going to win the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think it's going to be the Packers and Chiefs, but that Chiefs-Bills game is going to be so freaking good. Uh, any any last thoughts on the NFL before we close things out? Um, my last thoughts on the NFL are that uh, it's still pretty barbaric. Um, <laughs> I think there's a long way to come in uh, better understanding brain trauma that occurs from playing in the NFL, and I hope that they start taking care of their players better. But with that, uh, I do want to say... I'm looking forward to the games <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll come back to you next week with your uh, Super Bowl preview and Super Bowl bets. Cause they'll be playing the pro bowl next weekend. So there's no big deal about that, but we will come to you guys. We'll bring you some good bets. We'll get you up to speed on what we're doing to make our cash because uh, we are official sports betters now. That's our only job. That's true. And uh, we don't make much money in our actual job. So it's, it's, it, it helps. <laughs> Uh, so with that uh, we're signing off from the Alonzo bet I'm Sam and I'm Aaron